It's been said that life can often seem like a series of disappointment, one after another. But I wonder, what, what if it was less about our experiences and it was more about our expectations? See, if you're anything like me, I think there's often those moments in life when you get really excited about something. You get ready to go on a vacation, you start a new job, you enter into a new relationship, and your expectation is just so high. You're just so excited. And you get there, and all of a sudden, it rains at the beach. Or you start a new job, and it's not what you thought it was, or you find out your boss is a jerk. Or you start that new relationship, and it just seems like it's going to end like every other one has ended. And you start with all this excitement, but you walk away feeling, well, disappointed, discouraged. How many of you guys have been there before? Now, now, there are times in life when we have high expectations, but it's because we've been misled. You know, years ago, New Balance put out an ad that said, if you wear New Balance shoes, you will burn more calories than if you don't wear New Balance shoes. They forgot to mention that you need to walk in them to actually... Burn more calories. Of course, they got sued and had to pay lots of money for this. L'Oreal put out an ad that said, use our face cream and it will change your DNA genetic code and make you younger again. Turns out it wasn't true, believe it or not. I know, it's so easy to believe. And then Taco Bell got sued for saying that they seasoned their meat. And I thought to myself, wait, that's meat? Right? Like, what, what is that, right? So we, plenty of us have been misled in life about things that lead to high expectations. But so many times, you and I have gone into something with high expectations and our experiences don't match them, and we walk away discouraged and disappointed. It was once said that expectation is the root of all heartache. Think about that. That expectation, not experience, but expectation is the root of all heartache. And if you're anything like, like, like the way I experience life, and I think many of us will, will fall into one of two camps. When we have these expectations and we don't experience them the way that we really hoped that we would, we, we, we usually react one of two ways. First way is we begin to lower our expectations. Right? Like we, we get to a point where we, we begin to say, well, I, I don't want to be disappointed in this, and so I'm going to set the bar really low. So I don't get, expe- get, get disappointed. What was it that MJ said in the most recent Spider-Man trilogy? She said, I never, or I expect disappointment. Because if you expect disappointment, then you'll never really be disappointed. Anybody brave enough to say, that's me, that's how I live my life. Because you know if that is you, life is, doesn't feel very full when you expect people to disappoint you. And there's another side. The other side of the coin is a lot of us, we, we may not set the bar too low. What we do is we set the bar too high. We say, I'm going to become an overachiever. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to prove to myself that disappointment is not in my future. And so we set the bar ridiculously high. We push towards perfection. But rather than enjoying life, we're always trying to conquer the next thing. You see the problem there? One side, we're never satisfied because we can't get there. And the other side, we're never fulfilled because we have no expectations that we will ever get there. And I wonder, is this the way that God created us to live? 
just expecting to be disappointed all the time. See, there's a problem with these. You are shaping your experiences based on the disappointment you expect. But here's the question. What if we began to shape our experiences and expectations based on who we're expecting it from? Let me give you an example here. If you came in on a, on a Sunday here and you expected to hear the greatest, if you're new today, welcome. So great to have you guys with us. And if you came in today expecting to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, I hate to break it to you, it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> Hopefully it's fine. But you're probably, you know, go listen to Charles Spurgeon on YouTube. Like he, he'll, he's the man, right? Prince of preachers. But like you have to have an expectation on, on who you're, Spending time with. If you went home and expected your spouse to be your superhero, they're going to let you down. If you expect your elected leaders to fix all your problems, they're going to fail you. If you expect the Colorado Rockies to ever make it back to the World Series, (laughs) then dream on, as Steven Tyler once said. Dream on. Right? But if you start coming to Forefront and you get to know us, you get to know that you're going to come in here, and it may not be the greatest sermon you've ever heard, but you're going to hear the Bible taught, and you're going to learn about who Jesus is and why he came for us and how good he is. If you get to know your spouse and you understand who your spouse is, you don't have to put them on the pedestal of being a superhero. You realize that they are just someone like you, a human who lives in a broken world trying to do our best. And if you go to a Rockies game, you can just enjoy the sunsets, right? <laughs> Because that's as good as it's going to get. But, I mean, the reality is there's a, our expectations should be based on who we're experiencing. And we shouldn't get to the point where we lower the bar so we not get disappointed. We should rightly set our expectations. But I, I wonder, in your life, if you're anything like me, often what happens, though, is we have these expectations around God that, Either we heard from somebody else, or we read in a book, or we, we experienced, or we just think this should be the way it is. And, and, and all of a sudden, we have these, these high expectations of God. And then in our life, something happens. Maybe we felt like God was moving, or we asked God to heal somebody, or we asked God to work in a situation, or God to fix my problem. And maybe God moved differently than you were hoping he would. Maybe you prayed and prayed and prayed, and God hasn't answered yet. Or maybe that loved one that was sick, didn't get better. And often what happens is we begin to get to say, well, God, you're just going to disappoint me again. So I'm not going to trust that you're going to come through. We lower the bar. Or we say, okay, no, God, I, I believe that you want what's best for me, but I'm going to work really hard on my side to do it my way just in case. But is that really trust either? And so I, I think with our faith, we, we tend to, to do this all the time. But I wonder, what, what if the answer isn't lowering our expectations on what God does? Our answer isn't trying to hedge our bets. Our answer isn't trying to do something just in case or to, to, to reframe. What if our expectations were to rightly understand who God is and raise the expectation bar as high as it can go? Because I think this is true, and this is something that we, we see that the disciples in their life experience. I think this is something that you and me can experience too, is if we begin to know Jesus personally, we begin to understand how God created us and moves in our life, we begin to see that God doesn't hold back what's good for us or what is best for us. 
God may not give us what we think is best, but God is going to give us exactly what we need. And when we begin to see that, we realize that he has given us more than we can ever imagine. So, so today, as we come in here and we start to, to think about this, I, I, this is my, my challenge for us as we start a new series today, is that we can learn to know exactly who God is, why he came, and what he says is best for us. And let's not lower expectations, but let's expect the world from the God who created it. We're kicking off a new series today called King of Kings. And we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through, up to Easter, walking through Jesus' last week of his life. As he gets to Jerusalem and he spends the last week of his life, we're going to walk and crawl through this. And I want to encourage you guys, if you have to miss a week for any reason, don't. I'm just kidding. Try your best not to miss a week and tune in online because I believe that looking at how Jesus lived the last week of his life for us will teach us so much about who he is, why he came, and how that can change our lives from the inside out. And so today we're going to see how our expectations can dictate our experience and disappointment. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those out, pull those out. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and we're going to see in Mark chapter 11 that there was this huge expectation around Jesus, around who he is, and and around why he was there. And what the Jewish people were going to learn quickly was that he wasn't the king that that they expected, but he was the king they needed. And the same is true for you and I. Now, just a little background as we lead into this. In Mark chapter 11, we find that Jesus has made his final walk into Jerusalem. Uh, the, the chapters before Mark, Jesus had been uh, healing and teaching on the other side of the Jordan, which is, now, which is now actually the country of Jordan. He was on that side of the river. He was um, walking through Jericho. That's where he met um, Zacchaeus. Some of us talked about, we talked about Zacchaeus last week. He met Zacchaeus, ate dinner at Zacchaeus' house. He healed a guy named Bartimaeus. Uh, He was a blind man. He healed blind Bartimaeus. And then he makes the 27-mile journey to Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, he stops at the Mount of Olives, which was a popular place for Jesus during his last week. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Um, What what is interesting about where we find ourselves is that the Jewish people for the entire life of following God had been experiencing lots of brokenness. We, we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible when we see in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to choose what was right on their own, sin entered the world, and we just saw this up and down life of the children of Israel, which is a lot like our life too, just ebbs and flows, highs and lows, ups and downs. But God made these promises that he was going to send somebody to fix what was broken, that he was going to send someone who was going to... Um, God said, let there be light, right? God was going to send somebody who who was going to um, give us a new heart, to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And so the people began to look forward to this Messiah. And there was a lot said about this guy. He was going to be the king, the Messiah. And so they'd been looking for him. Well, in about 63 BC, we saw that Rome came and conquered Jerusalem. And so they took the area over. And Rome began to put their control over the whole area of Judea. And Rome was harsh, and Rome was, was mean, and Rome tried to control everything. And so you started to get this picture from the people of Israel that the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. And he was going to push back the Romans. And he was going to make Israel great again like it was under the days of King David and King Solomon. And so it's been about 100 years by the time Jesus' ministry begins, 93 years-ish. 
And Jesus hits the scene, and all of a sudden, the people who are waiting for the Messiah, they hear about this guy from Galilee named Jesus, who's healing the sick, walking on water, giving sight to the blind, feeding 5,000 people at one time, and more like 20,000 on the hillside. And so they start to wonder, is this him? And so crowds just start flocking to Jesus, and they start watching him do these miracles, and they're going, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the king we're waiting on. And even his disciples were trying to get in on it. His disciples were like, yeah, we're going to push back Rome. The revolt is coming. We don't know when it is. But yet Jesus began to say all these weird things like the first is last and the last is first. And the children are the ones who, uh, if, if you don't live like a child, if you don't have the faith of a child, how can you inherit the kingdom of God? All these weird things that sound strange for a conquering king. So then they make their final march to Jerusalem. And I'm wondering if the disciples are thinking, ooh, this is our moment, right? Like we need to make sure we've got our swords and our guns and all our tasers and all of our stuff because it's almost time. And then we find Mark chapter 11. Grab your Bibles and look with me. Mark chapter 11, just starting in verse 1. Notice what Mark says here. This is, we're going we're to read the triumphal entry. This is an important passage in all the four Gospels. It says this, Mark chapter 11, now one, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if you read on, it's this really cool exchange where Jesus says, hey, if somebody asks you, what are you doing with these? Say, the master needs them. Say that Jesus needs them, and they're going to give them to you. So they go, they get, these, they get this donkey. A colt is a young donkey. And so they bring this young donkey, and it says here in verse 7 that they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So there's this fever pitch going on. There's this energy, this excitement. They're yelling, Hosanna, which means deliver me, God, save me. They're laying coats on the, on the road, which is an act of homage for royalty. They're, he's sitting on their coats. So this is a big moment. Here's a picture of the Mount of Olives, just to show you a cool picture. I had the chance last, back in January to spend part of an afternoon here. And this tree right here, they think, is at least 2,000 years old. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? This one right here. And some of these are even older. And so Jesus was down the hill. Here's another picture just to kind of show you where they're at. So that on the top is the Temple Mount. So at some point, there was a road that led to that big square in the middle, which was a gate. Um, and so from here, you would have seen Jesus get on a donkey with crowds around him and ride up this hill across the Kidron Valley and then up into Jerusalem. And so imagine, everybody's excited. This is the Messiah. This is the King. Hosanna. This is the Son of David, the one we've been waiting on. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and there's this really big, exciting moment. You couldn't, you couldn't miss this scene. People are yelling, God, deliver us. So here's why this is so important. This actually was the kickoff to the final week of Jesus' life because Jesus was declaring to the world by doing this that he was the Messiah. Jesus had said this a lot in his teaching, but this was that moment 
When Jesus was showing up and he was in the face of the priests and the religious elite saying, I am the Messiah. There was no missing what Jesus was saying. Now, there's a lot of interpretations on what this would look like in, in Scripture. Uh, Daniel talks about how God was going to come riding on the clouds in power. So a lot of people took the thought that the, the Messiah would show up on a, like, a, like a, a stallion, be riding on a bronco, right? Like, let's ride. And he, so he'd be riding in, and, and, and everybody would be like, let's go. This is great. But there was another verse in the book of Zechariah. I mean, I'm going to show it to you. Look, this is what Zechariah says. And I don't know how many people were expecting this, but Jesus fulfills this prophecy. He says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah had predicted Jesus would come humbly. But everybody was looking for the conquering warrior king riding on the white horse. Jesus is going to come later on a white horse, but he rolled in to Jerusalem this day on a donkey. And so Jesus is teaching us something here. This is really important here, and, and I don't want us to miss what Jesus is saying. Not only is Jesus telling us that he's the Messiah, that he's the king that God has been talking about since the beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, but he's also making a comment about what kind of king he is. They expected a king with a sword in his hand and an army behind him, and they found a king with 12 fishermen and a couple other guys. Riding on a donkey. And so Jesus is teaching us something here. Why the donkey? Donkeys in those days symbolized peace. And so if you were going to bring a peace offering to someone, let's say one nation wanted to bring a peace offering to another nation, you would load up a donkey with your stuff. And so you would load up your donkey with all the gifts, the myrrh and the aloe and the Broncos gear and whatever you wanted to take to the king, and you would bring it up the hill and you would give it to the king. Remember the story of Esau and Jacob? Some of you might be familiar with that story. So Jacob, in the book of Genesis, made his brother Esau really mad. Hadn't seen each other for years, and Jacob hears that Esau is coming to see him. So Jacob freaks out, thinks he's going to die, loads up all kinds of goods, cattle, gold, silver, all kinds of stuff, sends it on a donkey ahead to meet his brother. And his brother sees it, and he's like, what do you, I don't need this. He's like, I'm, God's blessed me. He said, no, take it as a gift for me. So don't miss the picture here. If someone rode a donkey to a king to make appeasement for a, a, an issue, Jesus is the one on the donkey. What does that mean? It means that this is a picture that Jesus is on the donkey riding to the king of heaven, to God, to make appeasement for the brokenness of the world. Jesus is the gift. Isn't that cool? Jesus on the donkey. Jesus is the gift. He came to, to fix the problem. See, Jesus knew what our problem was. The, 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 the Jewish people at the time, they thought their problem was Rome. If I can just get Rome out of here, if we can just push Rome away, if we can just have freedom and control of our own life and be able to spend our own money and not have to pay all these taxes, then life is going to be good. We're going to have everything we need. And Jesus says, that's not your problem. Your problem is bigger than that. Your problem is sin. Like sin and, and brokenness, these, these are the problems. So Jesus riding on the donkey is the gift to solve the problem of sin, to make things right with God. Now, I want you to imagine with me. Imagine that you're sitting at your favorite coffee shop, and in walks Jeff Bezos and Jesus. 
It's been said that there's only two people that can fix your problem, Jesus and Jeff Bezos, right? Now, it's Jesus. I'm going to tell you why. But just imagine you're sitting here at this coffee shop, and Jesus and Jeff Bezos both sit down with you at the, at the table, and they say, hey, Drew, what, man, what can I do for you? What, what's your problem? And I start thinking about all the things. Think about all the things. What, what would you say? Man, my, my, I need to, man, finances are hard right now. Inflation is killing me. Work is tough. Relationships are messy. And they both said, hey, we'd love to help you. Here's the question. Who are you going to look at first? It's a valid question. If your problem are finances, your problem is needing a new job, your problem is paying off your debt or your house, are you looking to Jesus or are you looking to Jeff Bezos? See, see, the reality is a lot of us, we think our biggest problems are actually symptoms of a deeper issue. And so a lot of us, I hope you answer that the right way, but I think a lot of us would go, hey, Jeff Bezos, will you fix my problem first, and then Jesus, I'll give you my heart. See, I think the reality is that we look at the symptoms of the problem. It's like if you go to the doctor and you go, doctor, my arm, doc, my arm hurts. Give me some pain meds. And the doc says, actually, your elbow is fractured. I need to do surgery. No, 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 it's fine. Just give me some pain meds and I'll go on my way. This is what we do all the time. We, we think our problems, that the, the root issue is our finances. You know what? It's not. It's your heart. We think that the root problem of our issue is our relationships. You know what? It's not. It's your heart. It's because our hearts have been broken by sin. We live in a broken world. And so everything that we see that flutters in our life is the result of the deeper issue of sin. Jesus comes to fix the deeper issue uh, of sin. How, and, and so if you're sitting with Jeff Bezos and you're sitting with Jesus, I mean, I wonder how many of us would go, hey, actually, Jesus, I need you to help me with my problem of sin first. And then all these other things are going to begin to fix themselves with your power. See, I, I think if you're taking notes, here's something I want to share with you is this, that, that Jesus came to heal what has been broken by sin. See, we think the king is going to come make our lives easier. And the king is going to come get rid of our enemies and give us freedom. And really, the king comes and says, I came to fix the bigger, deep issue, which is the broken heart, which is the sin. It's not the financial issue or the health issue. All those are issues. All those are real. But the biggest issue we have is, is sin. And so Jesus came to fix the brokenness in our life, to repair our hearts, and to give us the tools to live healthier lives, to make fi better financial decisions, and to have better relationships. But you can't fix that stuff first. You have to fix what's in here first. M many of you are familiar with Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte, um, he, at, at one point under his reign, he had, um, let's see, he had an empire that stretched from Belgium to Rome, covered a half million square miles, and had 44 million people. He was a conqueror. Talk about a conqueror king. It was Napoleon. Napoleon, he uh, seized political power in 1799. He crowned himself king in 1804. And in 1815, he was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. And that ended his reign. And if you want to look at all the conquering kings that have come through history, you're, you're going to see that the same thing repeats itself. Alexander the Great. Cyrus the Great. Nebuchadnezzar. Caesar. The New England Patriots, like their reign always ends, right? All of them end, thankfully. You know whose reign doesn't end? Who? Jesus. Jesus' reign 
began and will, it will reign forever. 2,000 years ago, Jesus rolled in to Jerusalem on a donkey as the king of heaven, and he still remains the king of heaven today. And what is so beautiful about this is that Jesus offers life to everyone who chooses to believe in him as king. See, here's the thing. A conquering king can come into your world and meet your expectations for, for, for freedom. A conquering king can roll in and, and put more money in your pocket. A conquering king can come in and make sure there's more food available. But do you know what a conquering king can't do? Forgive you of your sin. But Jesus can. See, this is the biggest thing I, I don't want us to miss when we think about Jesus being the king of kings. Jesus doesn't just just give you things. Jesus fixes the root issue. And the reality is all of us have sinned. Like this week, like we could play the Ten Commandment game again, right? We're all going to lose. It's the reality. Jesus has come to forgive us of our sin. And that is what every single one of us in this room and every single one of us tuning in online and every single one of us in this, need, in this world need is to be forgiven from our sin that separates us from God that breaks our hearts and breaks our families and breaks our communities and breaks our world. And when Jesus forgives us of, of our sin, he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us the power to be able to say no to sin. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're, still gonna, we're all in process. We're still going to be messy. But Jesus gives us the power to say no to sin, which means we actually have the ability to live the best life that Jesus promises that's available to us. And isn't that good? And if you're here today and you have never been said yes to Jesus and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, that is where life begins. It's not about coming to church or being part of a group or saying a prayer or reading your Bible. It starts with saying, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I turn to you. If you haven't done that, right now is the moment to do it. Because Jesus promises you life. Not someday, today. And so Jesus, he, he comes in as this, as this humble king, and he rides in and changes expectations. But the expectations aren't done yet. I want you to notice, verse 11, verse 11, notice this. And it says that Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, so he goes in, he surveys everything. Now, Jesus had been there. I mean, in Jesus' day, a, a Jewish male would go every year for a festival, maybe multiple times. So Jesus went every year to Passover or to some of these different festivals. And so this wasn't the first time, but Jesus went in, he surveys it, and then it's already late. It says he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so he goes back and he sleeps and he's going to go back the next day. Now, I want you to think about, just put yourself in the shoes of Jewish men and women in those days. The temple was the place where you were meant to experience God. So I want you to ask you, okay, I want you to think to yourself, where is the place that you could go and experience the presence of God. Like, seriously, think about that. Where, where's your place? If you're having a tough day and you just want to go pray and you want to get quiet, maybe it's at home or maybe it, it's, it's a mountaintop somewhere. Like, for you, your place to experience God might be to drive to Aspen and go to Maroon Bells. Or, or maybe, here's a picture of Wolf Creek Pass. Maybe that's it for you. You want to go to Wolf Creek Pass and just experience God. Maybe the place for you is Bronco Stadium. Well, maybe next year. Not quite yet. <laughs> But there's a place that you can go and you can experience God. That was the place where the temple, that was the temple. 
So in, in first century uh, Jer- Jerusalem, I mean, this is where you would go. The temple, God says that God does not dwell in houses or temples made by men, but everywhere. But the temple was a place where God had made for him to reside with his people. So the temple was the place that you would go and you could pray. The place that you could go and you could make a sacrifice in it for atonement for your sin. It's a place you could go and you could experience God. The problem was the temple had been corrupted and had been gotten really messy. How many of you know we have a bad habit of messing up the beautiful things? And so in God's law, God gave them the sacrificial law. And the sacrificial law was to help people see their need for God. And so every year, you, if you were a Jewish man or woman, would take your animal, whether it was a sheep or it was a dove or whatever it could be, a pigeon, and you would take it in and you would take it to the, to the priest on the altar and you would put your hand on it and they would kill that animal. And it's really, you know, for us in a very clean culture, it's gross. But for them, it helped them see the importance of sin or the, the importance of sacrifice. Like that animal paid for their sins that year, Right? Could you imagine, like, putting your hand on the, the, the little cute sheep, right, and seeing it, the light go out of its eyes? That showed you, like, wow, my sin is messy, and my sin is broken. We cover all that up in our Western culture, but they got it. So this was God's plan to help people see that they needed a sacrifice, where Jesus would come be the sacrifice once and for all. And so they, they, God had this, this law and this plan. Well, what would happen was if you would you know, come to one of these festivals and you lived in Galilee or you lived in Syria or you lived somewhere else, you would come and often you wouldn't want to bring an animal with you all the way from your farm in Damascus. So you'd come to Jerusalem and then you could walk up Market Street and you could buy a lamb or you could buy a pigeon or you could do whatever. Also, every year Jewish, a Jewish male had to pay two days worth of wages to the temple tax. It just helped attack, keep the temple going, right? Help keep the, the lights on kind of thing. And so what had happened, though, is that the priests had taken the temple mount and turned it into a den of robbers. Here's a picture of the temple mount. So this right here is a mosque that was built. I showed you a few weeks ago the, the picture of the Dome of the Rock mosque, the big one. This one's just the Dome of the Rock's here. This one's right here. So this is where, just imagine 2,000 years ago, this building wasn't here and there were just tables, and people out here. It was the court of the Gentiles. And so if you weren't Jew, you could come up here. But this is where the, the um, priests had made a very convenient place to buy your animals and exchange your money. So if you came from Damascus and you had a, a coin with Caesar's face on it, well, you couldn't use that in the temple. So you had to trade out your money. Well, rather than going to Market Street, you could do it all on the Temple Mount because for convenience. But what people didn't know is that the priests had corrupted this area. And so you want to trade money out, they're going to gouge you on exchange rates. They're just going to, it's highway robbery, literally. You, you, you wanted to buy an animal? Sure, you could go and you could buy your sheep there or your pigeon there for very, very inflated prices. And when we were here, our tour guide was telling us what the priest would do. This is so messed up. What the priest would do is they would take the sheep that you just bought, that you walked over to them, and you spent however much money on it to sacrifice, and you take it to them, and the priest would say, oh, okay, we'll, we'll sacrifice this for you. Your sins are forgiven for this year. Go on. And then they would walk that sheep around the back to the other side and back out front to sell it again and not even do the sacrifice. Talk about corrupt, horrible, evil stuff going on. So this is all going on at the time. It had gotten really, really ugly. How did this happen? 
How did people who started with this beautiful thing that God gave them turn into this really ugly thing of corruption? How did it get there? Distraction. They got distracted. They got distracted by the money. They got distracted by the power. They got distracted by feeling needed and feeling that they needed to be important. And when we get distracted, our hearts get moved to the wrong place. So I want you to notice what Jesus does. Watch this. This is amazing. Okay, check this out. Verse 15. Verse 15. It says, that, And they came to Jerusalem. Remember, they went back down to the Mount of Olives, back to Bethany, stayed the night with Mary and Lazarus and Martha. And then he, and, and the next day he enters the temple, and he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So Jesus walks out to that picture I showed you and just starts, getting, Get out of here. Get out of here. Move. Get. Go. And, and those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he stops the priests. He stops everybody taking sacrifices in. He's like, get out of here. Stop it. So imagine this moment. Like the priests are just like, what is going on? Here's Jesus up here, and he's just causing a ruckus. He's turning tables over. You know, there's gold and there's silver, and people are like exchanging coins. And Jesus walks over and just flips it. And then Jesus says this. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's what Jeremiah said, the temple, God's home would be a house of prayer. He says, This is not written, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, they heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished. The crowd's looking around going, yeah, what, what, what is going on here? And then when the evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus goes in and just starts a ruckus, flips tables, sends everybody out of there. Because he's trying to wake them up. He's trying to, to show them that they've been distracted. And what's really interesting about this is I think sometimes you, you and I, when we read this about Jesus, it surprises us. Because we like to think of Jesus as this, like, you know, blonde-haired, light-skinned, super nice guy that will do anything that you ever ask him to do and doesn't care what you do as long as you give him a little bit of attention, right? Oh, I don't, I don't mind. Yeah, I don't care. Just, just come spend some time with me. No. Jesus welcomes everybody, like we said a couple weeks ago. But you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't affirm our sin and our bad choices. He tells us when we've gotten distracted and when we've let things get in the way. And so in this case, Jesus comes in and he flips tables. He's not some apathetic guy. Yes, he's the prince of peace. But if you turn God's house into a den of robbers, you know what he's going to do? He's going to flip the table. He's going to get in your face. See, there's a difference between anger and righteous anger. All of us get angry. Jesus got righteously angry. And you might wonder, what's the difference? See, often you and I get mad when things are taken from us, like our time or our money or our praise or our accolades. God gets mad when his character is assaulted. And that's what they were doing. They were assaulting his character. God, God get, gets mad when there's offenses against God and against his people. So, for instance, abortion. I can't imagine anything makes God more mad than when somebody takes the life of an unborn baby. God values the sanctity of life. 
God gets righteously mad when people take life. Or, or injustice, when, when people are being put down or being talked down to because of their, their color or their skin or their education level or because of where they live. Those are God's people. Those are God's children. How dare we put people down because they don't look or talk or act like us? God gets mad about these things. Or when injustice is done, are people are taken advantage of by institutions or by government or by the church? Or it doesn't matter what it is. That stuff makes God mad. And so, yeah, we, Jesus loves us. He loves us so much he came and gave his life for us. But Jesus wants to help you see where we've been distracted. The priests, the religious leaders, it became all about the money. It, it took their heart away, and they missed Jesus. It took them away from looking for the Messiah, and Jesus came to flip a table to wake them up. And I wonder, guys, is Jesus trying to flip a table in your life? See, Jesus flips the tables of our hearts to wake us up from our distractions. See, you might think to yourself, well, I, I, I really don't have any distractions. How many of you go like, yeah, I'm pretty good, right? <laughs> like, I don't get distracted easily, right? Like, yeah, you know, I go to church, I read my Bible, I give money to the church, like I, I go to my life group. I, I'm not really distracted. Yeah, but how about your heart every single day? See, as people, we so easily get distracted, sometimes unwillingly, sometimes because we wanted to take away the pain. But we, we, we get distracted, and we have these, expecta these expectations that these distractions are going to help us feel joy. So just, I think if you looked at your spouse and you said, hey, what were you excited about last year? It's probably going to be very different than what you're excited about this year, right? Like husbands and wives, like what was your spouse into last year? What are they into this year? Is it different? Not, not always. But for some of us, you know, like last year I was really into mountain biking. And then the next year I'm really into skiing. And then the next year I'm really into um, to fishing. And next year I'm really into golfing. And then next year I'm really going to be into bow hunting, right? Like whatever it is. Like we all have that next thing that's going to, oh man, it's gonna, I'm going to just love this. It's going to fill the blank in my heart. Right? It can be anything for anybody. But it's a distraction. It's a good thing, but if we think that that is the ultimate thing, if we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, it's an idol thing. It's a distraction. And when we put things that we're really passionate about above God, they become distractions that take our hearts and our eyes away from God. Ruth Haley Barton, she says this, One of the dangers of living in a constant state of distraction is that we never go to the bottom of our pain, our sadness, our emptiness, which means we'll never find that rock-bottom place of the peace that passes understanding and rest ourselves there. See, one of the lies we buy into, and it may not, maybe you don't, but I do, is that we can just find that thing that's going to bring us freedom. Because we all want freedom. If there's anything our soul and our heart wants, it's freedom. And so if I can just find that hobby or that relationship or that that number in my bank account or the right car or the right house or live in the right place or do the right activities, I'm going to feel free. I'm not going to feel all held down by this world and by this mess. But the truth be told, we're always seeking something to fix the symptom and our expectations are that that's going to do it. Really, the deep brokenness in our heart is what needed to be fixed by Jesus. And the expectation is that Jesus came to fix it, not just to make us happy or comfy or secure. And so, so often in our life, we're, we're seeking these things. We just, hey, man, I, if I could just get to this place in my career, I'm going to be free. If I could just get that relationship, I'm going to be free. 
But the reality is you're just going to be on to the next thing because that's the way that distraction works. And that's the way that it, it happens. The truth is we're all going to serve something. You can never truly be free. The question is, do you want to serve your job, your bank account? Do you want to serve your hobby? Or do you want to serve the king of heaven who came and gave his life for you so you can be forgiven of your sins and set free to follow him? So Jesus, I think, wants to come and he wants to flip some tables in our lives. Back when I was in my mid-20s, I don't know if I told you guys this story before. Back when I was in my mid-20s, I, I knew God was calling me to ministry, but I ran from it. And I just said, someday, God, I, I want to do my thing first. And I was in the corporate world where me and a buddy, we decided that we were going to get rich. So we started a business. I bought a limousine, actually. I, I actually bought a limousine. I drove a limousine for a while. You guys know this? I bought a limousine, and we were going to make so much money. We were going to buy more and more limousines, and we were going to have a fleet of limousines, and we were going to be millionaires. And once I was a millionaire, then, God, I'm going to do some stuff for you. Well, it was a good plan, but it was a worldly plan. It was a true plan, which means that it wasn't a God plan. That business failed so bad. Lost all my money. Had to sell it for a loss, the limousine for a loss. Broken broke a relationship, just really, really tough. But I look back, and I see that what God was doing, he was flipping a table in my heart. That my heart wanted to, to think that I could fill and find freedom and find success and find joy by getting all these things and having stature and having money in my pocket. And God was saying, no, that's not it at all. All that's doing is distracting you, and all that's doing is taking you away from me. So you know what God did? He came, and he flipped the table in my heart. And crazy enough, God wants to come and do the same in your life. So you might be in a situation right now where you're like, man, work is crazy, relationships are broken, my finances are a disaster, my health is a mess. And could it be that God is allowing those things to flip a table in your heart? to throw all the stuff that you had been building up, the stuff that you had been trying to make important in your life and to throw it on the ground so that he could say to you, I am the king that knows exactly what you need and I am here to change your life from the inside out. See, as we, as we close, I just want to challenge you to think about where God's moving in your life right now. See, see, maybe in your life you have these expectations that if you could just get there, if you could just fill the blank, if you could just make it to that place, then, then, then you'll feel free. Let Jesus flip that table. Maybe you are in a place in, in your life where you, you just think to yourself that, that Jesus is just this genie in a bottle, and if I could just rub the genie the right way at the right time, he can sprinkle enough little magic pixie dust, and he can make all my problems go away. Let Jesus flip that table. Jesus wants to come in. He wants to show you that he is not the king that you were expecting, but he is the king that you need. So let him come in. Let him turn it upside down. Deal with that. Give that to him. Put that at his feet. And know that he's good all the time. Because once Jesus flips that table and you let him do it, and you let him pick up the pieces, he will show you that his way truly is the right way. And that when you let him change this, brokenness that's deep down inside of us. Let him forgive your sins. 
let him set you on the path for life. It's then, and, and forefront, I mean this, it's only then that you can truly experience life the way that God meant us to live it. But that it requires that we bow the knee to him and say, yes, Jesus, you are the truth and the way and the life. Here's my challenge for you guys this week. I want you to go and I want you to see where are the tables that you're building in your life that Jesus needs to flip? And let him do it. Invite him to do it so he can change your expectations to see that the king of kings is truly the one you need. Would you pray with me?